Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. Equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. Welcome to this episode of the Living Leadership Podcast. It's the first of a three-part series looking at motives in ministry. My name is Paul Coulter and I'm the Head of Ministry Operations with Living Leadership. And in this episode, I want to establish the principle that motives matter, but not the most. Now, if you're involved in any form of Christian ministry, which I'm sure you are if you're listening to this podcast, then you will, I'm certain, have faced the challenge of motivations. What is it that motivates you in what you do in the church or in the world in the name of Christ? How should you respond when you see people whose motivations don't appear to be pure? And how can you handle your own impure or mixed motives? These are the questions I hope this series will help to answer. Now, I framed these episodes around the New Testament passages where the word motives appears in the NIV translation. And up front, I need to be clear that there's no direct equivalent word in the Greek of the New Testament for what we mean by the word motives. That is, the reasons that move a person in his or her actions by which he or she justifies those actions to himself or herself. Now, for that reason, many English versions, for example, the ESV, don't use the word motives at all. But there are several passages that discuss the issue of why people engage in ministry. And in those passages, the NIV often uses the word motives. And I think it's justified in doing so because that is really what's in view. Now, before we get to the first of those passages, uh, I really want to lay a clear foundation for the motivations that ought to be behind ministry. And I think the most helpful place to go for that is 1 Peter chapter 5. And there the Apostle Paul writes to his fellow elders those who are overseers in the church. And he says this in verses one to four. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, I'm sure you'll have noticed the three pairs of positive and negative ministry motivations in these verses. First, we are not to do it out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have us. Secondly, we're not to do it for shameful gain, but eagerly. And third, we're not to domineer over others, but to be examples to them. Three negative motivations, a sense of grudging duty, a desire for selfish gain, and a hunger to control others. And these are utterly unworthy of servants of Christ and of the gospel. So firstly, we ought not to serve out of a sense that we have no other option. How many meetings have you attended with that feeling in your gut that you wish you didn't have to go. And you only went because people expected you to be there and you didn't think you could say no. How many ministry decisions have you made out of a sense of pressure that came not from the gospel or from the leading of the Spirit of God, 
but simply from the expectations of others. I think that's at least part of what Peter is getting at here. Now we can start out in ministry with a joyful sense that it's an honour to be able to serve. We're motivated by a response to God's grace. We're determined to act consistently with his truth. But over time, the system squeezes us into a place where we lose sight of those things. And the only thing that keeps us going is, if we're honest, the paycheck at the end of the month or the thought that we really wouldn't know what else we could do with our lives if we left ministry or how we would provide for our families. Now, if that's you, either that you've lost your motivation altogether or you've become trapped in simply fulfilling the expectations of people, please reach out for help. Our living leadership staff and associates would love to draw alongside you. We'd love to listen in confidence to your heart. We'd love to help you rediscover your joy in the Lord. And our regular programmes for leaders can help as well, like Refresh Network Online, which runs twice per month, except in the summer. And you can connect with both our associates and with Refresh Network Online through our website, livingleadership.org. But don't serve in the church out of a sense of compulsion that comes either from slavery to the demands of others or from a sense that you have no other option. Let the grace of God be your motivator. Rediscover what it means to serve willingly, gladly, joyfully, because that's what God wants for you. He never intended your service for him to feel like you're plodding through treacle. There ought to be a lightness and a gratitude as we serve. And secondly, we shouldn't be motivated by what we get out of it. Now, it's unlikely in the UK or Ireland and I suppose many other parts of the world that you'll be motivated in ministry by financial gain. The pay and the guest speaking on our area are not going to make you rich. Although I've noticed that some ministry positions are remunerated highly. And I wonder what that does to the motivation of those who apply. I suppose the same is true of pastors who only ever move to larger congregations with bigger stipends. Financial temptations can factor in ministry decisions. And of course, there's also the temptation to blur the lines in tax returns and other financial affairs. So make sure you're accountable to others in those areas. And if you discover that a desire for financial gain is really motivating your decisions, then please keep those in check. Make sure that you're following the leading of God, not your desire for financial reward. But there are also other aspects of shameful gain in ministry besides the financial, the praise and recognition of others, fame, the desire to make a name or leave a legacy. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who recognises these things in my own heart. And sadly, I see them in our evangelical subcultures. We've got to test our hearts against such impure motivations. But positively, we must allow them to be squeezed out by the eagerness that Peter calls us to have. Now, eagerness mightn't sound like a corrective to greed, but it is when we realise that Peter's saying that we should treat ministry not as a means to some other end, money, fame, popularity, security, but as an end in itself. We serve because we're servants. Who we are in Christ motivates what we do. And our eye is always on the return of Christ and his reward. 
It's what Peter talks about. That vision frees us from the desire for any reward this side of glory. And thirdly, we've got to check our hearts for the desire to control. This is a big one. I know there are obvious extreme cases, some of which come to light from time to time. Leaders who have become abusive and manipulative. Those are the obvious cases, but I'm sure that your heart and mine is also prone to the desire for control, a temptation to think that we have the insight from God that is greater than those we lead, which might of course be true, but that therefore we should direct them into the outworking of that insight, which most certainly we should not. We've got to learn to distinguish the will of God for his people from our will for our churches and ministries. We've got to realise those aren't always exactly the same. There's a difference between motivating people with the grace of God and equipping them for the works of service he has given them to do, and on the other hand, motivating them with guilt trips and channeling them into the programmes we have designed. I know your church needs people to serve in all sorts of valid and good activities, but you need to trust the Spirit of God to lead people into the works he has for them. You don't need to do his work. If you're controlling in that way, you will collapse under the pressure or you'll crush others under it. So hold your leadership lightly and inspire people with the gospel, and then rejoice with them when God leads them into ways of serving you never expected, or that bring no glory to your church, but are glorifying to God. Don't lord it over people. Instead, focus on setting an example to them of faithful living, living that is full of faith, showing what it means to depend on God and to really trust the gospel. The gospel that tells you that your reward is in glory when Christ returns. And living that is faithful because it's aligned with the scriptures, priorities and commands. What your people need as much, perhaps even more than your words, is your life. They need to see what obedience looks like in you so that they can have courage to obey themselves. So much for the wrong and right motivations in ministry, not compulsion, covetousness or control, but a desire to model gratitude, joy and faith. Let's turn now to the first of those passages that talks about motives and how we handle them. Specifically in this case, how we handle the wrong motives of others. So Peter is real that there can be wrong motives in ministry. What are we meant to do when we see people who seem to be ministering that way? Well, let's hear what the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 1 verses 15 to 18. He says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Now, Paul is saying that there can be goodwill or selfishness as a motivation for gospel preaching. It was so in Paul's time, and it's surely so today. 
In the NIV, from which I read, it uses the wording whether from false motives or true. And as I mentioned, there is no Greek word in the New Testament that's a direct equivalent of the word motives. So the phrase false motives here translates one word in the Greek, which means something like pretense, and that's exactly how the ESV translates it. People who are preaching from pretense or from sincerity. In other words, these people are hypocrites. They claim to be preaching for the glory of God, and in fact they're motivated by selfish ambition. And that selfish ambition leads them to a destructive rivalry with the Apostle Paul. They're glad that Paul is in prison because it takes him off the preaching circuit and it creates more openings for them. In fact, more than that, they hope that the report of their successes will trouble him. They actually want to do him harm. Now, I have to confess, I find it hard to believe that the people Paul is talking about knew that that's what they were doing. I suppose that might be naivety on my part. My wife would almost certainly say so. But I think it's also because experience tells me that our motives are seldom known to ourselves, especially when they're warped. That's a biblical principle. Proverbs 16 too says, All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. We're experts at self-justification with an endless capacity to convince ourselves that we have no impure motives. But there's no fooling the Lord. And there was no fooling the apostle of the Lord Jesus as he wrote under the Spirit's guidance to the church in Philippi. He knew that these people were motivated by the wrong things. He knew that in a way that you or I may not. Indeed, we need to be very careful about judging others' motives, and more of that in the second episode in this series. But for now, the question is, how are we to respond when we can see, and we're fairly sure, that someone is motivated by the wrong thing? I'm sure that you, like me, have observed situations where there doesn't seem to be any other option left to you other than the conclusion that a person is motivated by selfish gain or a desire for prominence. So what are you to do? Now let me say first what we shouldn't do. We should not enter into a public spate with them. We shouldn't take to Twitter or Facebook as if we think we can resolve things that way. Social media is a hopeless channel for that. It achieves nothing. And I'm afraid that those who live by it will die by it. So be careful. Don't fall for the temptation to broadcast your grievances and your annoyance. The Apostle Paul doesn't set out to preach against these people. Rather, he rejoices. Now, a caveat is essential here. I've come across people who point to this passage as justification for partnering with people whose motives might not be right. And that's not what Paul is recommending. He would never say to the Philippians that they should support these preachers or work with them. In chapter 2, he tells them to recognise and support the right kind of servant of Christ, people like Timothy and Epaphroditus. So this is not a call for naivety or careless association or uh, support that's blind to how people seem to be ministering. Paul doesn't rejoice in the ministries of these people. To do that would be to take joy in sin. But he does rejoice that the gospel is being preached. You see, Paul recognises, as Peter has taught us, that motives matter. 
but they don't matter the most. What matters more than our motives is the message we preach. It's the truth of the gospel, because the gospel is God's power for salvation. It is the truth of God by which the Spirit shines the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus into people's hearts. That's 2 Corinthians 4. The gospel is powerful, not because the preachers are powerful preachers, or even because the preacher has integrity, but because it is the word of God. And that's not to say that it doesn't matter what we're like as preachers. Paul and every apostle is clear that we must be people of integrity. But the wonderful truth is that the gospel is not limited by how well we represent it. If it were, there'd be no point in preaching. All of us should give up now, because none of us is ever completely pure in our motives. Again, more of that in the next episode. Our motives are never pure. But the important principle here is that while our motives matter, they aren't the thing that matters most. It's more important that we preach the true gospel revealed to the apostles recorded for us in the New Testament. So if you find yourself wrestling with your motivations or the motivations of others, be careful that you don't get distracted by it from what you should prioritise over everything else. The truth of your message. Make sure that you're more concerned about speaking the truth about Christ than you are with exposing the falsehood of others. Don't spiral into despair. Rejoice in the Lord and get on with sharing the gospel. The point is that those other preachers were preaching the truth. That's what's vital for Paul. It would have been a very different story if they were preaching a false gospel. You can see what Paul says about those people elsewhere, but they aren't. And we need to learn from Paul. Now, we won't have absolute insight into why people do what they do, or why they do it the way they do it, or why they don't bother to partner with us in it, which I know can be hurtful and discouraging. Those things may be known only to God. But what we can do is to assess the message that people preach. And if it's the apostolic message of salvation from sin through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, crucified as our substitute for our sins and risen as our Lord and Lord over all, if that's what someone's preaching, then I can rejoice. If they preach some other message, if they deny sin, if they fail to call for repentance, if they sideline the cross, if they undermine the person of Jesus, if they focus on human effort and not the grace of God, in all of these things I must stand against their ministry. But if they preach the gospel, I can carry on in my ministry checking my own motives and thanking God that the gospel is being preached. It's not easy. But no one said ministry or discipleship would be easy. And for this we have the grace of God. If you're like me, you find that kind of behaviour in ministry from others immensely discouraging. But Paul reminds us that there's something bigger at stake than our emotional state. And he calls us, as he'll say later on in Philippians, to rejoice in the Lord. He's the one who never disappoints. To be content with our circumstances, read Philippians 4, and to learn that we can do everything God calls us to do through Christ who gives us strength. So I say it again. Focus on preaching the gospel. Check your own motives and rejoice even in the gospel ministry 
that seems to have wrong motivations. Let me pray for us as I close. Father, keep our motives pure. May we never serve from a sense of obligation, a desire for personal gain or a hunger for control. May we be motivated by grace, joy and peace in Christ Jesus. And when others seem to preach from wrong motives, may we rejoice that the gospel is preached and save us from discouragement, but keep us faithful in your service by the strength you give. In the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on any major social media application at Living Leaders, or you can visit our website, www.livingleadership.org, where you'll find even more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. Blessings. Blessings.